0: You are listening to episode 24 of the Lewis and Kyle Show with John Sharp. It was an unbelievable thing to watch
1: and one of the people that lost their jobs was my college roommate. But before he, before he left the office, I walked in and I said, you know that software program you've been talking about, which was basically a, an application for commercial real estate? I go, let's, let's do that. Let's do that thing. And
2: Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show, an interview podcast where Lewis and I bring on entrepreneurs, investors, and really people living unconventional lives that have experience in the things that Lewis and I want to do. Lewis, who do we have on the show today?
0: Hey Kyle, in this episode we bring on John Sharp, who is the director of the New Venture Development Program at the McGuire Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Arizona. We bring him on to discuss his career as an entrepreneur In a combination of real estate and technology companies, as well, we discuss his philosophy and approach to entrepreneurship education for undergraduates, and advice for other young entrepreneurs, and how to be successful in those areas. It's a really interesting interview. He has a lot to say. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you all do, too. With that, we're going to cut to it. Thank you for joining us. Hi, how are you today, guys? Thanks for having me. Uh, We're doing awesome, and we're super grateful that you're here to talk to us today.
1: Yeah, it's, it's exciting to be here, and, uh, and I'm happy to share uh, my experiences from the University of Arizona and my experiences from
0: my uh, life as an entrepreneur. Definitely, and we're looking forward to hearing about it. Uh, so our first question for you relates to some of your experience both as an angel investor and also as a lifelong mentor for young entrepreneurs, whether that's students or people in startups. Uh, so our question is, what do you most enjoy about being a mentor to entrepreneurs
1: well, if I had to pick something very specific, I think it is the discovery of their brand and identity as a venture. And I know that's a little bit of an amorphous concept, but there's there's something that clicks when they've done enough research and they've done enough talking amongst themselves and the and the founders kind of get to the point where they say, "Oh, we are X." And and it's something that sticks and there's usually words and images and things like that. But it is really the first step that they, they get to, to creating an identity for their company. And identity is a, a, a crucial uh, mm-hmm. stepping stone.
0: Yeah, a big buzzword, and I might be totally off here, is product market fit. Is that a similar concept to what you're talking about or not quite the same thing? So
1: so product market fit is is one of the pieces that you learn through your research and validation. and once you really understand that then yes it it is it is one of the things that contributes greatly to having an identity as a company so the the simplest example i can give you is you know when when i built my first company we were a product company we were not a service company Mm -hmm. and that was the simplest delineation and i stressed that all the time with everybody that ended up working there that, that our mission was to develop the best product to fit the market segments that we were mm-hmm. attacking.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, that's, that's great. And Kyle and I are working for that ourselves and we're not quite there in terms of the finding, realizing our brand and our niche and where we fit into this whole scheme. But this podcast is part of our journey of discovery.
2: You're passionate about entrepreneurial education, but kind of in a, in a different way than Lewis and I have seen it. You're, you're more, more action focused and less um, business plan focused, right? Can you uh, kind of explain that in terms of the the agile entrepreneurship that we've talked about in the past?
1: So one of the things that I, I need to stress for everyone in, in our audience is that I, I, I'm not an academic. It's interesting because my father was an academic. My father was a professor, but I always leaned towards wanting to be in business, work in business. I was really interested in, in how things got done. And my background is in software development. Well, in software development, we use something called agile. So agile is this idea that you have a defined segment of time that you call a sprint. And in each sprint that you do, you have a specific scope that you're trying to get done right? And it works really well for developing software applications. Well, you know, kind of fast forward and I'm working in entrepreneurship and I am constantly drawing on my experience in software development and this whole concept of agile. And sure enough, agile entrepreneurship is now a big buzzword. And we're, we saw that start coming out, especially when the pandemic hit, because it forced everybody to shift how we were approaching everything and started making us rethink. And we started looking at agile concepts as a way to both teach and to uh, develop a venture in kind of segments that build on each other. Now, I'm not saying that you don't ever do a business plan, mm-hmm. right? But the typical waterfall approach is you kind of build your business plan step by step, starting with your mission and your values and your value proposition and your problem customer solution. Then you get into your market and blah, 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 blah. And you still need to understand those things. Uh, but we, we like to see that done in an iterative fashion, the same way that you would build a product in an iterative fashion. And that's what Agile is all about. And we're actually continually restructuring our approach to teaching and our approach to developing ventures uh, at the McGuire Center at the university of Arizona to, to use agile techniques to do that.
0: So what would some of those discrete segments or phases be for like a student sprint? So
1: if, when you're, you know, when you're first starting you know, now in the McGuire center for entrepreneurship, we actually go for a whole year. And the context of how, what we do at McGuire is probably important.
0: Definitely to, 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 get into-
1: to, to talk about here. Mm -hmm. So that you understand the way we approach entrepreneurial education. So, you know, like this summer, our cohort is 85 students coming in in the fall. And technically, they're going to start in August. But what we really do is we start them in the summertime. And we start them in the summertime by interacting with them via LinkedIn and via our distance to learn technology at the University of Arizona. And we give them things to do. And the first thing that they do is engage in a competition. The competition is come up with the most original idea. So we're expecting by, you know, August 1st or late July to have 85 original ideas. And there's actually a competition and a prize awarded the top three ideas that come out of there. They then form teams and they start learning sort of the process of building a venture. Now that goes from August all the way to May. So it's two semesters. And because we have that much time, we start the Agile process very early and we start their product development process very early. So product development fits Agile perfectly. The part about validation, research, understanding your, pro- understanding your market, understanding your customer, those are things that we want them to, to do the research and do the interviews and do those things. But we don't want them to just stop. Because you do market validation and you want to continually do that. So if you have a sprint that let's say it lasts four weeks, we want some market validation. We want them identifying their problem, customer solution, doing their, what we call business model canvas and starting to to figure out what their business model looks like. And then they almost, they don't have to repeat everything, but they want to build on that like every four weeks. And in those four weeks, we have specific things that they're doing, whether they're creating a 30-second commercial or they're creating a video pitch around a particular concept like a go-to-market strategy. And we'll have them talk about that either in person or they record it. And we're using those techniques to get them in the mindset of, this is not just doing an assignment, you're working on a company. And that's the big leap that we want them to make.
0: No, I think that's really valuable. And I think the agile approach where something our school does, for example, in our new venture development kind of programs and structure is, like you said, that customer validation market research is like weeks one through four of the development. But by the time you actually develop your product, you've probably pivoted so much that you actually should be going back in and doing those same types of surveys and interviews with the uh, new product as it changes. So it makes sense to kind of keep that in a fluctuation uh, kind of iterative process as things develop. And I think that's more realistic yeah, and more feedback based.
1: I, I agree. I, and one of the one of the issues is that we, we wire you to do assignments mm-hmm. from kindergarten forward. And, and so you, even in college, you're used to, you know, you want to get the assignment, get your A and go home. And a venture isn't like that. And if you're really going to get someone into an entrepreneurial mindset, well, you have to get them to not think about these things as assignments, but get, to, get them to think about it as, okay, these are the things that I just need to do and continue to improve on to build
0: my business. Yeah, So it's a totally different mindset, the mindset of entrepreneurship and constantly changing versus the very school-based where you're given an assignment and you complete it and it's over That's with right. and, you, and you don't think about that again until the final or whatever, but it's hard to mimic that uh, environment in the classroom setting.
1: Yeah, it is. It is hard. So one of the things that we really try to do is we actually try to break the classroom up and and put students into tracks that more closely match the skill set that they identify with. So some people identify as finance and operations. Some people identify as sales and marketing. Other people identify as technical product development, product design. My favorite two words, product management. I really like talking about that and, and, and emphasizing that and getting them to start identifying with roles and not just the major.
0: Sure. Cause you're always
1: like, well, yeah, I'm double major management marketing or I'm management entrepreneurship or I'm this or I'm that. We want you to, we want you to start thinking like an entrepreneur, which means you need to wear whatever hat you need to wear to get the job done.
2: So you mentioned briefly that you had to move the competition for your students online. Uh, what unexpected results came from this forced transition?
1: So traditionally, the program had relied on on, on two core tenets. And one was uh, writing a business plan, right? And those business plans, I mean, I got, I think I got one last year, not this year, but last year that was probably 50 or 60 pages long. so we were getting the assignment, right? An assignment was getting done and these business plans were getting big, they were unwieldy. Secondly, there was live, almost always live pitching. And when we moved online, something interesting happened. We started focusing on having them do a voiceover pitch video. In creating these pitch videos, they were able to hear themselves. So at times during the year when they would live pitch, we would video the pitches and then we would play them back for them. But it wasn't like something that they could just go access very easily. We didn't do it that often. And with the video pitching, all of a sudden we started getting just very high quality scripted descriptions of the product they wanted to sell, the problems they were trying to solve. And it also, I think, added a level of creativity because they were more easily able to put in animations. They could time it exactly. So there wasn't all that anxiety about getting the pitch to three minutes exactly or getting it to five minutes exactly. And all of that combined had this effect that we just got very high quality work and we were really pleased with the results of what we got. and And more and more entrepreneurship groups like Tech stars and stuff like that are are you know, requesting pitch videos. You know it doesn't have to be you standing up in front of a chalkboard or in front of a whiteboard or a PowerPoint screen or whatever. it can It can be a voiced over pitch video.
2: Yeah, I think Lewis and I had a really similar experience with that in our entrepreneurship competition uh, where we pitched this podcast actually, uh, you know we've been through lots of live pitching, and it is very important to do that, but it, it takes a level of, of nervousness and, and and worry away when you're when you're behind a screen to where you can really focus on the product that you're delivering uh, so one thing that, that I've heard a lot and I'm, I've, I'm sure Lewis has too, is like people don't invest in ideas, they invest in people, and they invest in founders and what you're doing essentially is training founders. So how do you train your founders to be a more investable people?
1: So part of it is helping them to recognize that they are capable of more than what they think they are. <laughs> people are held back by a lot of things. You know, oh, I can't do that, I'm I'm not good at math, or I'm not a good public speaker, or I'm not this or I'm not that. Well. The fact is, is you might not be the greatest public speaker, but you can be extremely genuine and believable even if you're not a great public speaker. So part of it is great creating that confidence. And I've seen it firsthand where we would get teams where early on they would try to hide certain members of the team, right? (laughs) they, They try to minimize how much they're talking or whatever else. And, and later in the year, when they've finally just been pitching and pitching and, and talking and, and getting up in front of everybody, they start to lose that fear and that anxiety and it, and it really shows. Secondly, we don't necessarily put too much pressure on them to go in and do a startup day one, right? We actually focus on preparing them either to do a startup or to work in a startup, or if they're gonna go the route of corporate, what it means to be a corporate entrepreneur, right? And, and that's like kind of one layer of this thing. There's a whole another layer about- Can I interrupt, interrupt and ask
2: you what corporate entrepreneur means to you?
1: So within, within the structure of corporations, like you see this with Google's Area 51 group, uh, they have a, a whole area. So if you come up with a, a new idea, you can actually submit that idea and you actually, you and potentially even members of your team can move to an entire separate part of Google. Mm-hmm. So Google has taken very tacit steps to create an environment that
0: promotes. Well, something I've read is that innovation. they have the, what's called the 20% time where they let their employees use 20% of their time for personal projects, whatever they want to work on. Yes, and that's
1: historically been the case. Yes.
0: I don't know if that's still a thing or not, but that makes sense. how that, that kind of, if there's traction or if there's buy-in from senior leadership, that can transition into a more formal internal business development to keep that like IP in house.
1: Yeah, we, we actually, uh, two in 2019, we took 30 students to Silicon Valley. And one of the things that we did was we spent almost a full day at Google. And, uh, and one of the product managers for Google home actually was a university of Arizona uh, graduate. And it was, it was incredible. Uh, the Google campus was just, just amazing. It was like the United Nations. I mean, incredible amounts, incredible diversity. The food was incredible. We walked all over the place. They took us in and and they talked to us about the the steps that they do to, to make innovation real. And I, and I think that back to your question, Kyle, which I might not have answered perfectly is like, how do we, how do we train founders? Part of it is they, they, you gotta innovate, right? You can mimic an existing company perfectly, but if you don't innovate, you're not really crossing the divide, uh, mentally you got, you've got to be able to innovate, uh, but without innovation, uh, it, it's tough to make your mark as an entrepreneur.
0: Sure, And I think, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And that's interesting. And we'll potentially get more into that when we talk about some of your angel investing, since there's similar topics of mm-hmm. the characteristics you look for in that founder, not from the side of what you look for as an educator, but what do you look for as an investor? But, We'll get into yep. that next. We've kind of gone ahead of ourselves in terms of context for who you are. Obviously, no one starts out as running an entrepreneurship program without a background as an entrepreneur. So I think we should right. get into some of that now. Uh, you've got a couple of companies, some you've sold, some you're still working on. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the first company that at least recently started? You probably had some things earlier in life, but 360 Facility and what that was.
1: Yeah, so the way 360 Facility came about my dad was a professor, and ended up starting a software company. And I, I worked for that company for several years. Left, uh, joined a company in Chicago, and we were a services company. So we did web development stuff like that. And the uh, founders of that company, we had a product that we'd been working on internally, uh, which was kind of a content management, knowledge management product. Uh, really, really new, kind of edgy stuff for that time. This was like nineteen, you know, nineteen ninety eight. Sorry, 2000. Yeah, year 2000. Let's say that. So the founders took $10 million in venture capital, spent $9 million in like nine months. And then I was in the room when like, I don't know, 65 people lost their jobs. And I was in the lifeboat. And, you know, that was the turning point for me in terms of I was like ready to do my own thing, right? I, I had... I had seen like the, this whole venture capital, let's spend as much money as we can in the shortest possible time. And that was the way things were back then. And it was an unbelievable thing to watch. And one of the people that lost their jobs was my college roommate. But before he, before he left the office, I walked in and I said, you know, that, that software program you've been talking about, which was basically a, an application for commercial real estate. I go, let's, let's do that let's do that thing. And, uh, we sat down, he had a prototype that was done in Microsoft access, which is still a basic database. Yeah. Yeah, Just simple database. He wasn't a developer. He was like, you know, he could do basic things. He could paint the screens and make it look the way he wanted and kind of save things in the database. And, but, you know, I had been coding since I was probably 16. So, you know, we took that thing and I still had, I still had my job. So I was I was okay, and then you know at night and whatever I'm I'm working on this this idea, and we walked this idea into literally the largest janitorial company in Chicago, and literally after the first meeting they said when can we have it, and we said you can have it, but you're going to have to rent it from us basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> and back then we didn't call it SAS. so S A A S software as a service, they didn't call it that, they called it. We were called ASPs, application service providers. It was a, okay. kind of like an ISP it would be your internet service internet provider. Service. Mm-hmm. The original term was ASP.
0: Uh, can we go so back we, a second? Where did your yeah. friends have that idea? Was he managing property in the past and saw that there was- like, Yeah, so,
1: issue? right. So my partner, Scott Twyman, who, uh, who lives in Chicago, he's my partner in my current company, Luceris as well. He had worked at Aramark- and uh, US steel and had worked primarily in the facilities and facilities maintenance. He was actually an engineer by, by education and uh, an MBA, but but he had been been working in that that particular industry for a while and understood the problems. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, we understood that the price point of the existing products in that market, this is literally just like, I got a light out or the air conditioning is broken or it's too hot in here or whatever. They record this stuff. The problem was more often than not, they didn't record this stuff. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Okay. And there was lots of phone calls and things got dropped and things got missed and stuff like that. And we were the first company to send that to actually, it wasn't a smartphone at the time. It was like a pager. (laughs) Pagers were email addressable in 2000 and 2001 back and back in there. And that's what we did. And literally we'd go into a meeting, set that thing on a table go on the internet, type in, it's too hot or a light's out. And that thing would start buzzing and jumping all over the table. And you'd thought we'd landed on the moon. Like the people around the table would just go crazy. And then, and the other thing we did is we, we created a price point that was roughly at about 20 to 30% of the software they had been buying and the software that they would literally install on a tower. They would install it there. They're probably like maybe two or three people because you know, they would charge five grand to use So most people would just buy one user, you know, and it wasn't internet connect. There wasn't, the communication wasn't there. And if communication isn't there, then action is delayed.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And then two requests aren't met. Right. So I have a a question about the business model at this point in time, because now obviously even like people that don't follow entrepreneurship are pretty much aware what a SaaS is. It's a commonly used word. Were you operating as a SaaS at that time? Was there precedent for that business model in 2000 and 2001? Oh, there was precedent. There was
1: precedent for SaaS companies long before that. There were service bureaus that were, you know. But the way service bureaus would work is, you—that was all modem-based technology and stuff like that. So the internet changed everything. I mean, the internet made it so we could get into any office anywhere. But it was really interesting. Is we would have conversations, people saying, "Yeah, this internet, you know, this internet thing—it's here to stay. You know, I mean, it's it's real. It's it's useful." And so the big thing for our business model was creating this recurring revenue. And creating a recurring revenue stream that was predictable. You know, normally the way software was sold prior to SaaS was most, soft, I mean, service bureaus aside, that they were by far the minority. Most software, you would buy the license and you'd buy the hardware.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Whether it was an IBM PC or an IBM mainframe or whatever it was, that's what you were in for. And SAS just, it changed the whole model. We didn't have to worry about it. Inst- we didn't have to, we didn't have the cost of dealing with people's messed up installations. You know, they try to install or something could go wrong. Mm-hmm. And half the time you can't solve the problem unless you physically go there. And that doesn't and, scale well, or you can dial into it or whatever. But if they don't have a dial in capability, you got to go, somebody's got to get on an airplane or get in a car or whatever and go there. So we were managing our own infrastructure. But we, we, so, actually, we actually didn't host it on our own servers. We actually also went and got host, like, Amazon Web Services. Amazon Web Services didn't exist at the time. We used a different company called Interaccess in Chicago. They're gone now. But we had hosted
2: dedicated servers. And that's how we did it. So where did you go after the janitors to scale up into, into a big business?
1: Well, so part of understanding a market is understanding, like, that's why we do business model canvas, because... Sometimes your customer isn't your only customer. So what the people that hire janitors are the facility management companies. So what was happening was, is the janitorial company, they liked the fact that it improved efficiency, but what they really liked was that it made their sales presentation off the hook. Like they could, they did the same demo, the demo that I did for them, which made the pager jump on the table. They did the same demo for every property manager in Chicago. (laughs) okay and so what happened was is the property manager would get to use the basic work order functionality like lights are out or hot too hot too cold or whatever but there was this whole other like area of scope which is we need to maintain our hvac we need to set up weekly and daily and monthly work and we need to track all of the assets all the pieces of equipment in the building and they didn't get any of that for free. So we came back in and we would sell them all the rest of it. And that's that- like
2: ultimate scale to have your customers selling it to other people. Uh, well, so that's-,
1: that's called, yeah. And it's, and you can call it a channel. That's why business model canvas is so important is because there's potentially all these, these indirect sources of revenue that as an entrepreneur, you want to identify and then you want to, you know, as, as time went on, we would start, like, I could tell you exactly, what percentage of our total revenue our recurring revenue was versus our service revenue. Cause you know, we got paid for training. We got paid for doing some custom development or integrations or whatever, you know, yeah. those, those, those were, and, and all of that is kind of, that's the business model of, in and of itself. And you, and it's, you try to, you try to figure out as much as you can upfront, but then as you start meeting people and talking to them and they start saying, can you do this? Can you do that? Well, you start responding to that, you know the, the the needs that are being articulated to you directly
0: and that feeds back into the theme of just not building your entire product up front and letting the needs of the customer kind of inform future product development decisions
1: right so so we didn't have the term agile back there but i limited our development releases six weeks or less like we we, we wouldn't do anything over six weeks it was just too much and we were able once once we got the identity the the identity of the company was, was that, that we are extremely nimble and can respond to what you want. And it helps with having a good technical architecture, right? (laughs) Having people that understand it uh, and doing good design. But yes, we, we, we really just kept layering stuff in and we got so good at it that sometimes customers would say, I need this or a prospect. And I'd call them back next week and say, we put that feature in because you, you said you wanted it. Whether you buy it from us or not, that was a good idea. And I'd let them know. And more often than not, they would sign up. We really disrupted the industry from a pricing perspective. We disrupted it from our desire to continually add features and continually re- release features frequently, but in small quantities. Too many companies try to release too much stuff at once, and it, I think it overwhelms the people that are kind of on the ground trying to absorb
2: this stuff. People using the, the software. So uh, one question that I have is like, what was it like to apply this complex technology that you're creating in your own head to such an old world industry like real estate? So you
1: have really weird conversations with people about the fact that the like the internet, yeah, it's gonna be here. <laughs> uh, they also, a lot of People understand that the level of accountability is, is changing for them. And one of the things that one of the techniques that I would do is, is I would point out. So a lot of times I would be talking to a chief engineer or maybe a director level, you know, people that were kind of at the level that would be interacting with the software. So one of the things that I would tell them, I'd say, look, you know, the internet's being widely used. And, and really as you're, de- if you're developing your team, you develop your staff, it's really important that they know how to use the computer because you're not always going to be here and as they move through their career knowing how to use these systems the importance of them is just going to increase and sure enough now you see near there's like near 100% adoption in commercial real estate residential real estate you know across even even anything that's like institutional or government i mean everyone is using some kind of software to track maintenance.
2: I don't even understand how you could do it without it. You know what I mean? Like,
1: uh, well, they did it for a long time. They would use index cards. <laughs> I know, and, uh, I know. <laughs> spreadsheets. Some of them were using spreadsheets, you know, to, uh-huh. you know, to their credit. They would put the, all the equipment would be in a spreadsheet.
2: I mean, they've been doing it for like millennia, you know,
1: beforehand. Like, but when you, you know, when you're dealing with a bank that has 11,000 branches, they needed our software worse than anybody just because trying to deal with 11,000 branches and a bunch of data centers and then a bunch of big office buildings, it was overwhelming. And we were the first ones to come out with a software that worked just as well for the branch as it did for the data center. There was just different features turned on for the people. So it, was, it took a really deep understanding of the customer and the profile of the person and the, and the job they were doing to make sure that the person in the branch didn't see too much functionality. Because branches are just simple. They're thousand square feet sometimes or even less, right? Yeah. Um, whereas the data center is like power and racks of servers and all this other stuff. And a totally different, almost a completely different product inside the same uh, suite of products that we had.
0: That's a great story about that company. And I think it speaks a lot to kind of some of the things you're talking about having for your students, kind of coming at it with a problem in the first place and then developing it according to the business philosophies that... Uh, you're talking about with your students and it kind of gives you some credibility for teaching those ideas because that's what you used on your own with or without the explicit terms for it. St- students love to hear stories for whatever reason,
1: people love to hear those stories. And I think maybe just cause they're a little bit colorful. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, or the time that we went on the field at Arizona Diamondback stadium and had a party and it was just, you know, it's that kind of stuff. That's, And, and, but how, how, how you apply that, uh, to your business. So a really big thing that a lot of ventures, when we're we're focused on go to market is I always want them to tell me what trade shows you're going to go to. And I always make my teams go and research the actual trade show websites because it tells you who else is going there. So if there's competition, they're probably on the list. Sure. And they're usually on the website. You can even probably tell where their booth is going to be. So I want them to know what's it going to take to get to a trade, show, how much it's going to cost like stuff like that, you know, but when I was, when I was on the field with the Arizona diamondback stadium, that that whole event was part of interacting with our broader customer base in a social setting and how important it is to not, you know, they don't always want to talk
0: business. Sometimes they just want to throw a ball around. Sure. And that's, I mean, relationships is a huge part of it, but uh, I know that you, Oh, I know that ultimately you sold that company how did how did that come about and then how did that change your perspective going into new ventures after that point so we
1: survived 911 we survived the 2008 financial crisis you know we were fortunate in that we had a really loyal customer base so we had like 98 99% customer retention even through the 2008 crisis i think there were a couple of customers who just disappeared like the companies went out of business. That was what things were like. It was that bad. And then uh, by, you know, 2010 things were recovering pretty well and we were really showing some traction and we actually hired a company out of San Diego to advise us. So this company's job is to take companies out for, for bid. Basically they, they help you put together a, it looks like a business plan, but what it really is is a prospectus, right? It's a prospectus on the company. It talks about the market. It talks about all the achievements, blah, blah, blah. And we met with them, I think it was early 2010, early 2009, and they said that we weren't ready. We weren't ready to, to go out yet. And we were seeing some real growth, and we wanted to better understand that. And, and neither Scott or I, as, as entrepreneurs, really understood the broader market or really understood how these things get done. So there was an educational component there. They literally dissected our business and here's what you need to do in sales. Here's what you need to do with your intellectual property Here's you know, whatever. They had a checklist for us
0: to kind of corporatize yeah. yourselves.
1: Yeah. And obviously we're a pretty mature company in terms of processes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a whole nother discussion about how you get to be process driven and Excel, but really good companies do that whether they're entrepreneurial or not. Then almost a year after that. And I remember thinking we haven't gotten everything done on the list. They called us and said, you need to be ready (laughs) because things are happening. And uh, I remember we got an invitation to go to dinner with a company out of Austin called Vista Equity Partners. And Vista Equity Partners is notable because Robert Smith happens to be the richest African American in the country. He was the guy who Paid, uh, he did the mm. commencement for Morehouse College and paid all of the outstanding student debt for all the graduating class. Uh, the, the guy, I mean, he, Vista Equity is an amazing private equity company. And, you know, sometimes they buy good companies. We were a good company. We were well-run. Sometimes they buy distressed companies. But we went to uh, to have dinner, and I remember Scott gets the valet ticket, and the number on the valet ticket is 360. So it said 360 on the the valet ticket. Yeah. They went and parked the car. The valet ticket said 360. We went in and had a meeting with them. We had a couple of other meetings with other uh, interested parties, but uh, pretty much immediately they wanted to move. And so it was probably, I don't know, maybe two months. The due diligence process is actually pretty wicked. It takes a long time. And we had like 500 contracts to go through. I mean, it's it's a lot of work.
0: One of the guests we had on a few days ago was... Uh, he sold a paint company, like a online paint kind of service company. Oh, he, was, yeah. uh, he was, it's called paint. Zen. they did basically on demand painting, uh, for commercial and residential applications. But we were talking to him about what he was experiencing during his exit. And he was the CTO and he basically was operating under the assumption because due diligence was so complicated and so wicked to use your word <laughs> that he was operating under the assumption that it was going to fall through. So he, during the entire phase, essentially just kept his head down and kept doing product development as if the light at the end of the tunnel was going to fall through and he he just had to keep going. Like that's how his experience was. Yeah. I was actually the CTO
1: and I was involved in the design and development of the product right up to the, right up to the point where we got bought. And I can tell you, I felt the exact same way. Uh, Even while due diligence was going on. I mean, we were in the process of, you know, implementing our product at Microsoft, like while, while the due diligence was happening. For managing Uh, their facilities yeah, all Redmond and some other stuff. And it was, you know, it was a huge deal, you know? So I, I literally had no time to breathe during that whole thing. And, and my partner, he took the brunt of, of the due diligence
0: work because I had to, I had to run the company. Yeah. I think that's something that's really misrepresented in the entrepreneurship space. Time of the whole process.
1: It was, it's, and you're, you're pretty exhausted when it's over. Um, and and it's, and it's hard because you can't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody in the company knows. And so you're, you got this great big secret and you have to live with that every day and everything has to, you know, kind of go along. So,
2: did you have a moment after you sold and after you were done and that horrible, stressful time was over where you're, you're like, man, I just, that just happened is there a moment that you think back to you're like I sold Um, a company I really did it
1: yeah well yeah that was probably about six months after because the transition there's the there's the date that you close and then there's the transition because you know once you're bought they come like they come in I mean everybody comes (laughs) in and then and then it's you know just really long uh, more long days and more just figuring stuff out and sharing information you're getting bought not to run independent. Well, some, I'm sure some companies are, we weren't, we were being bought to be, uh, paired up with some other companies in the same space and to, you know, integrate that, create more of a common platform. Uh, it, it expanded our market into universities and other areas. So, but there's just so many people to talk to and you got to get like, there's a whole new design team. They're starting from zero. They don't understand the product. So there's a lot of work that goes into that transition, but uh, after about six months, then yeah, I was kind of like, okay, cool. Now we're part of, you know, Accruant, and my business card says Accruent, And yeah, I, was, I, was, I, I think I had been doing that for almost 12 years, so I think I was pretty ready uh, for whatever, like, whatever the next phase of my, of my life was. So I spent two years working for Accruant, and then decided it was time to take a break.
0: So for you to taking a break, mean, truly just like a sabbatical and traveling, or do you jump and start getting more into mentorship at this time, or do you go straight into the next idea? What happened? What happened next for you?
1: Yeah. So this was 2014 and we, and right around that time, uh, really wasn't doing a lot of work. We started Luceris, uh, and had an idea for a product and we were working on that, but then we decided to relocate to Arizona. So we were in Chicago the whole time and then decided to relocate to Arizona and that, you know, took half a year. Just mm-hmm. all of that, you know. Sunny days. Yeah, totally, totally different, you know, come moving across country and all this stuff. And quite frankly, when when we started Lucerus, we were a, a solution and looking for a problem. So we had a we had a cool idea, but you know, customers weren't seeing it and, and definitely not at at a level of cost that we needed to survive as a venture. And so after a couple of years of this, so this is we're looking at you know 2018, I, had, I started applying for for jobs at the university in the entrepreneurship program, mentor and residence positions I had to keep calling and and trying to meet people and stuff like that, and eventually uh, I got noticed. Now you're the one running the show, which is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's still an open position for an executive director of the center, so mm. I'm I'm really more of an interim. There's a whole other side of it, which is our academic programs, right? So, uh, just regular you know classes on entrepreneurship, family entrepreneurship and also a master's in entrepreneurship. Our master's in entrepreneurship is, is a really interesting program because it, uh, if you come out of college with a master's, you can get a master's in entrepreneurship in a year, uh, which, is, which is pretty common like in Europe and stuff like that, but not so common. You, you know, most people think grad school is a two-year commitment, but uh, we've created a program that you can, if you want to do it fast, you can do it in a year. If you want to do it a little slower, you can do it in a year and a half.
0: What do you teach? Um, in a master's program for entrepreneurship, like pitching or ideation, yeah. or what, what are the courses like? Finance? Uh,
1: yeah, actually, actually, I'm I'm not probably the right person okay. to, to to try to articulate that because I don't work on that side of the McGuire Center. So, NVD is what we do, which is is about eighty percent, eighty to ninety percent undergrads, and you know, ten to twenty percent grad students. Mm-hmm.
0: So when I saw uh, that because I watched the pitch competition. There are some yeah, so we have. We,
1: Right. We have a whole faculty that teaches uh, all kinds of different entrepreneurship courses. There's courses that will take you almost through the whole scope of what we do in MVD just in one semester. Uh, but the, vent- the, vent- the, and the ventures can be pretty, pretty darn good. They just don't have as much time to develop and they don't have time necessarily to pivot. Right. So we have a lot of teams that will start in August and by, Jan- by January they pivot or even earlier. Sometimes they just figure out that they're not, it's not quite right, or they need to, to to turn it a different way. So we had one team this past year that developed a hydration monitor that was basically a sensor that you would wear. looked a little bit like an Apple Watch, but basically it would monitor your hydration. The whole point of it was to sell it to construction firms, you know, people like that, people that work in hot weather, monitor hydration, make sure their workers aren't passing out and fainting on the job, stuff like this. Safety is a huge deal in construction Oh, absolutely! and electrical work. People work on electric, all the utility stuff that you see all over the place. So it's, safety it's a very, is a big deal.
0: It's a very Arizona problem as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, I mean, it's, it's, it's,
1: it's, a, it's a problem in Missouri, Illinois yeah. in the summer. But uh, uh, so, so when, when COVID came, they actually pivoted into an N95 mask that actually has sensors in it.
0: Oh, wow. That's a very, so, so they're actually pivot.
1: building a mask to, uh, to, to. Are they pursuing that? Yes, they are. Basically, they're, they're trying to, to sense symptoms, right? So they're trying to get ahead of symptoms. There's a ton of loss. COVID
0: symptoms or dehydration yeah, well, symptoms? It could
1: be no, COVID, COVID okay. or flu or whatever. And, and actually, it's, it's interesting it's taken us so long to get there because everyone can, business people will always tell you, especially in, in labor intensive service businesses or even in manufacturing, so much productivity is lost. In the spring and fall when we get flu season like when the big changes big swings in temperature because that 40 degrees to 50 or whatever it is when the viruses can travel the most efficiently it's it's amazing to me that that we haven't adopted more of this kind of technology the pandemic is finally making wearing a mask just
0: kind of like not weird yeah i mean i was living in thailand from september to december And I'd say that in any given day, 10 of my classmates in a 30-person class were wearing masks. Just if you had had a cold, that's what you did. Or if you were concerned about getting anyone sick or you're in a hospital, you wear a mask. It's just that culture exists in those other places and it's just now starting to take hold in America. And I I think another really interesting piece of that product potentially, and this is something I experienced today, going to the gym and wearing a mask during a workout, is I actually probably hydrate less when I'm wearing a mask because of the inconvenience. Uh, So that kind of reinforces the importance of the product when you wear a mask and forget to hydrate. Cause I mean, anyone who's tried to drink with a mask on knows it doesn't work very well. Another
1: I was going was, I was to mention that uh, I, in 2009, 2010, I, I did a two week trip to China uh, to attend a conference and also to visit the Microsoft campus in Shanghai, brand new campus that we, they were going to use our software to run it. And uh, on the airplanes, even then most of the, Chinese are on the airplane we're wearing masks. Yeah, even think- in in 2009, and so we're we're just w- culturally we just haven't adopted that so readily here. But
0: I, I think that's changing. I think that stereotype of Asian travelers wearing masks and being ridiculed for it's about to uh, lose its ridicule value for good. For I'm going to
1: start wearing a mask on an airplane all the time because it's yeah. cold. It's cold yeah. on an airplane, so it's comfortable. And I'm tired of getting sick. You know, I, exactly. I always get sick when I fly. And now I'm like, well, I should just wear a mask.
0: Yeah, you know, my friends and I are potentially ordering like a matching set of Alabama ones. And we'll get on the screen at the football games. Nice. Wear like uh, some overalls, put a kind of exotic little crowd outfit and get on ESPN or something with our matching mask.
1: I think you guys need to get some Lewis and Kyle's podcast stickers, man.
0: You know, send, send
1: some of those over here. Okay, so that's can, a good idea. Because I always I like to put stickers from our ventures on the water bottle.
0: Let's play the uh, Food Tender. Yeah,
1: kind of okay. like food, food Tender. And I really like their idea. And they ended up winning NVD this year. Here's another one, uh, I'd like to do a little plug for Wild Joy. This and is who are from, they? This is, from, this is from a year ago, uh, the previous years. Uh, and Wild Joy does uh, Experiences. Uh, so they, they work like one of their customers is the city of Tempe mm-hmm. and they're doing, so they do like TikTok videos and things like that to promote, uh, the city. But Wild Wild joy is all about experiences and they create relationships with the people that run. So let's say, you know, you, you and a friend want to go do a bike ride and you want to get someone to guide you. Mm-hmm. That could be an experience or you want to learn how to cook or you want to learn yoga or whatever it is. Yeah. It's all about the experiences. And they're focused on it 100%. Whereas Airbnb, it's like a side thing. You the yeah. see experiences on Airbnb, but Wild Joy's whole idea is, is to focus on it. And they're really focusing on the mid-market around Arizona right now.
0: Okay. We have and- a friend that does something fairly similar that we actually interviewed on the podcast earlier. He runs a experience swapping platform called Trips for Trade. Oh, cool. Which if you have access to something like that, like let's say there's a mountain biking trail behind your house and you have $3,000 mountain bikes and you know you have all the safety equipment and all the permits, you could trade hosting someone for that with them hosting you for, let's say hunting land in Mississippi or something oh, for like yeah. turkey hounds. And it's trading that assets and experience for those trips. So it's kind of the same thing of Airbnb, but for experiences. We've done house swapping for years too. Yeah, definitely. So, and that actually
1: worked out really well for, for us when we've traveled certain places and swapped our house. But yeah, some, uh, I, I would offer to, if you guys want to do some podcasts using like, while uh, Lacey Kane would be a great interview. Uh, yeah. Super dynamic, super extrovert. She's right there in Phoenix. Oh, yeah. That'd um, be cool if we could potentially do that one in person. You know, uh, the, the guys that are doing the N95 masks, um, sure would be pretty, they're actually pretty, pretty Tucker Stewart's a, a grad student, PhD student who's like the brains behind all that. And he's pretty, pretty good talker. So, sure. um, yeah, some
0: ideas for future shows. Yeah, definitely. And I know there's a lot more we could say about your different student experiences and your uh I mean we barely touched on Luceris, but we do want to get into your angel investing a little bit. Uh you yep. shared with us your involvement in the Desert Angels, Tech Law and Jarajona, kind of the value of being a part of that network to increase your leverage. So my question for you is what do you learn about industry trends from being tapped into these groups for investing? So it's it's funny.
1: The the thing that's always been really mystical to me is valuation. I've never really been the kind of person that just inherently gets that sort of stuff. I don't know if I'm like stumbling or feeling my way through it, like trying to figure out what customers want, but I can tell you this, like the desert angels experience has given me a great appreciation for people that can sit down and look at a company and say, here's how I would value this company. Here's the kind of capital this company needs to do its job. There, there'll there be companies that I'll come in and present to Desert Angels and uh, people that I know that have been vetting companies for years will look at it and go, they're not asking for nearly enough money. You know what I mean? They might be asking for a million dollars or 1.5 million or whatever in their A round. And he's like, no, they need like four. He'll say they need four times that. And it just, it boggles my mind. But I, what I, I realize is just, he's been doing it for so long. Right? So this person is really good at just looking at something and saying, the complexity of this is X and here's what they need to do now. In Arizona, we get a lot of healthcare-related products and stuff like this. A lot of these companies need a lot of capital, and all they're trying to do is get to the point where they're FDA certified so they can sell the company. So their exit is all about getting bought by it's legal. Yeah, they're not trying to make money. They're try- really just trying to like, get the thing done so it can be brought to market. And they play an important role. There's this whole ecosystem of startups that, you know, I mean this thing could have started in a lab and probably did at a university and that's where tla comes in right so sometimes things start at universities and they they leave and take their idea with them sometimes that idea that comes out of a lab or a research program tla can pick it up and help the professor commercialize it and then there's this whole but tla doesn't build your company right so the next step is how do you build a company and that's where the incubator comes in now TLA can partner with NVD if, we, if they have an idea that, it, that works and our business students can work with the professor and all this stuff. And that can happen successfully, or they might recruit out of our program as well. But basically, if you're going to go incubate and get a company going, you're going to go somewhere like Arizona Forge, who is the incubator arm of the University of Arizona. So think of TLA as like commercialization, taking stuff from concept, like moving it along getting it closer to being a product. Some of this stuff is highly scientific, right? So there's lots of research and lots of things. TLA has, has that kind of capacity. Uh, and then there's also Tech Parks, which is part of uh, UACI uh, Center of Innovation here on, on, at the University of Arizona. And they also have a whole you know, incubator campus. In Forge's Arizona Forge summer program this year. So this stuff is happening fast, right? And so part of my job is to I try to talk to these people and support them. But I also want to create opportunities for our ventures. I want Mm -hmm. our students pitching in more competitions, right? Historically, they've been pitching in like two, maybe three competitions. By the time we get to January, February, I want them to be able to like, I want like five competitions. We need to get
2: more opportunities. You've got a lot of passion for this and and I love it. One last question on angel investing though is... You know, you said that valuation was always something very ethereal to you, something you couldn't really understand. <laughs> it seemed like um, mysticism. <laughs> yeah. And, and you were learning from, from your friends that were there how to do it better. Is there anything that you learned from those friends of yours about how to vet founders? So I have my own kind of way.
1: And, you know, it's interesting. I haven't really had that kind of conversation. Now, the founders typically come in and talk to us. To give me a sense of, of I don't wanna say comfort, confidence, how's that? In terms of, so one of the companies that I invested in uh, this past year, I actually got to see the founder present more than once and actually had that founder come in and pitch, do her pitch to our class. And she's dynamite. And then I got to go and then I said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about investing, I'd like to come in and see your operation. So for me, it was about, I wanted to go there and meet her staff and get a feel for the culture and identity of that company. Once I did that, then I was like, yeah, this is a company I want to invest in. Now, obviously that took a lot of time. The mm-hmm. other thing I can do with Desert Angels, is I can, I can see who's investing in what companies.
0: That peer so if validation.
1: Yeah. So, if so like, there's a whole bunch of people out there already vetting and validating. And if I see a crowd going this direction, I might just like go there. <laughs> you know, I don't have to do any work. I, I mean, the the
0: cumulative judgment that represents of like each, each of these people have decades of experience. And if yeah. they're all seeing value. Well, the other
1: thing, the other I'm thing that, that. Des- desert angels is, is I think if you're an Arizona company, even if you've got some holes, I think you have a better chance of getting funded. And, and desert angels has a real an unstated mission kind of, but it, but it's, it, they really will support Arizona companies. And, you know, Tucson is not a big place, right? Uh, but we're only 75 miles from Phoenix, but you really far. haven't, you really haven't seen that, you know, Milwaukee and Chicago are 75 miles in between them, but you barely know it. It's completely filled in. I mean, you got Amazon, Uline, Abbott, you got all these companies. It's like one big thing mm-hmm. that's going to happen here. Uh, it
0: connects like Gilbert and Southern Phoenix and oh yeah. Northern oh, yeah. Tucson. Oh, yeah. It's, it's going to so happen. That,
1: that whole corridor, it's fun, right? The whole, the whole, the big challenge here is how do we make Tucson more of a destination, right? I mean, what a, it's a beautiful place. Uh, Tucson's gorgeous. I mean, it's 95 here in Phoenix. It's 105. You know what I mean? Cause we're, we, we don't have the heat. Like, I mean, we have heat. It's hot, but it's not like Phoenix hot. Uh, and it's really beautiful here. It's just the infrastructure has to be created, but there's been a lot of investment in downtown and, companies coming in, and I get to interact with a lot of those companies through Desert Angels, whether I invest them or not. I meet a lot of people, and that has been extremely valuable for me in understanding what the ecosystem needs from McGuire, right? How can we keep our talent home? What kind of opportunities can we create for them?
0: It sounds like there's really a fantastic ecosystem in the Tucson area, and it sounds like you're making an impact in, in your corner of it, but I think now we can uh, take a break. Then we'll transition to like our bonus round last couple of questions. Bonus round. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is what we call the bonus round. Kind of just an informal, more rapid fire, less chronological group of questions. And the first one we have for you kind of did this discussion a little bit in our introductory call, but I wanted you to share your information on it again is what do you think aspiring entrepreneurs should do after graduating college? So they know they want to be an entrepreneur, but you know, they don't have years of savings. They don't have an income yet. Uh, but that is the end goal. What would you advise them to do? Whether it's starting a job, working at a startup, starting their own venture right away. How would, how would you go about that?
1: Personally, for me, I wanted to work for startups. I started at my dad's company when there were two people, when there was two people working in the summer and stuff like that, you know, and it steadily grew. And, you know, so I saw kind of the growth of that. And that was fun. And then I left and went to another company that where I was on employee number 20. And the thing I think that made the biggest impression on me was just how much I got to do. There's not that many layers. And so you have to be really self-reliant and it forces you to really dig deep and figure stuff out because there's not, a, not necessarily anybody there who has the answer for you, and sometimes you need to figure out the answers and and I think that that i didn't start my own company until I was thirty five and I think that when I finally did make that leap where I had kind of lost lost and it was really the whole you know meltdown of watching all these people get laid off all in one day, literally black Friday that's what we called it you know, the, the fear was gone and I was ready and really it turned out that I was in, I was so well prepared that I was, I was really pretty lethal when it came to like getting in there and getting people to say yes to stuff. You know, you you got it. You can't, you got to lose the fear of, of asking for money. Yeah. Uh People are afraid to do that. You, you, if you don't ask for what you want, no one's going to ask for you but i would tell an aspiring entrepreneur go work for a startup. If you don't have something that's crystal clear for yourself right now, find a startup, find a company that that you like what they do, you at least have some some strong interest in it if not, you know, necessarily total passion, but get in there and work there for a few years and and hone your skills. Yeah.
0: How do you qualify a startup in terms of one that's like You don't want to go just work for one person with an idea that's like going nowhere and then dissolves in a year. How do you like, what's a good minimum threshold for the viability of choosing a startup to work at
1: there? You know, in fact, one of my partners has been working for a startup for the last uh, few years and, and they were venture funded. Right. And so they had, I don't know, I don't know how many millions of venture capital they had there, but it was, he was learning a lot and kind of seeing things. And it's been preparing him for what we were doing at Luceris, you know, and, and the ups and downs of, you know, kind of the hurry up and wait to, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. that's just the way it is. And you mm-hmm. just get, you just got to kind of entrench yourself and, and stick with your idea and keep selling. Um,
0: yeah. On that same note. Oh, go ahead.
1: So, I, so yeah, working for some one person with an idea, that's, that, that's a little bit difficult, but you know, a company of three, four five people.
0: That's viable. You know,
1: it is, it is if they, if they've got customers. Yeah. You if know. they've
0: got customers, there you go. That's something to concrete to, to latch onto. You know, we started our, we started 360 with a
1: customer. Yeah. So we had a story to tell and having a story to tell is, is a huge, you know, it's a huge deal. And, and we were always really conscious about, you know, you really have to be careful. You don't say I did this or I did that. It's always we,
0: you don't want to come off looking small. Company up. versus a person. Right, give
1: The impression that you've
0: got bench. Sure. So on that same note, some more practical advice for doing that. You told us about the difference between like active job searching and going to career fairs and the difference of opportunities that will be available to you. Could you share a little bit about that in terms of finding that startup to work at? Because they're not going to find you at that career fair. They don't have the resources for that.
1: Uh, Yeah. Well, one way is to go to trade shows. If you, if you have a specific industry, there's lots of real estate trade shows, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, (laughs) I mean, tons of those And, and you'll find companies that are smaller that, that may be looking for people participating and, and plugging yourself into entrepreneurial networks, you know, like startup Tucson and stuff like that. You know, anybody can come to a startup Tucson event and you have the same things in Phoenix. You know, there's a, there's a whole ecosystem of companies there that are small to mid range companies that talk to each other. Some of them might be angel funded through Grand Canyon or through, I think, Arizona Tech Innovations or I can't remember if that's the exact name of the angel group up there, but follow kind of those and get plugged into that and you can find events to go to.
0: Yeah, Startup Drinks is a real thing, just about everywhere.
1: Everywhere. They have it in Chicago, they have it here. It's just, you gotta gotta get yourself, you gotta put yourself out there and you gotta walk up to people you don't know and talk to them.
2: That's the real key there. It's putting yourself out there. Um, yeah, it's all risk. One question here that I have is what programming language would you learn in 2020?
1: If you really wanted to get a high paying job pretty quickly, learn SQL server or Oracle.
0: Maintaining you know. the old systems. No, those are, those are now.
1: production. Those are production database systems. They just, they, those, those people, database programmers make a lot of money, believe it or not. You could also, you know, if you are, it depends on what you're really interested in. If you want to, if you're interested in back end stuff, you know, like just plain logic and making things work, you learn Python, you know, there's tons of opportunities for Python. If you want to be a front end developer, then you got to learn react or angular, uh, or Vue or some of those technologies, node, mm-hmm. um, typescript, you know, those are all more front end technologies, but you know, we're seeing a lot of specialization in, mm-hmm. in the industry. So you know, back the days when, you know, I was coding front to back, th- those days are, if you're looking for a job, most likely you're going to gonna fit in one of those kind of three categories, database programming, logic programming, or
0: front end programming. Which of those kind of stacks would be most valuable for trying to get that job at a startup specifically? So
1: startups, you'll probably end up doing more, right? So mm-hmm. can a startup really afford just a, Database programmer probably not, but if you can code in a database, you can you can do Python. You know what I mean. So you could do everything behind the scenes, and so that would be a good skill set. Or if you were front end and Python, that would be a good skill set. So the, the more that you can do, the more valuable you are to a startup. The other thing that's really important that a lot a lot of software developers struggle with uh, communication. Uh, Being able to articulate, being able to communicate, being able to understand what people are telling you, and the ability to think critically and think flexibly. And some companies do this. They'll have really great programmers, but they need exact instructions because otherwise they, they struggle. Sometimes real brilliance also comes with handicap. That's just my personal experience in working with lots of different developers from
2: all over the world. So our next question is what goals do you have for the McGuire program during the rest of your tenure as executive director? So
1: one of them I stated already is I really want to, I want to see uh, bigger, I want to see bigger pools of prize money and especially prize money that's made available to companies that actually launch.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: our, our prizes have been really simple. You know, first place team wins $10,000 flat. Like I think that there needs to be more, incentive to get companies to go out and take a chance really try to build something for real. Secondly, I'd like to see a, I'd like to see a higher percentage of our teams uh, have the opportunity to launch. And I think that the, the development of our ecosystem here locally is going to help with that. And I think finally having a real incubator like forge that's, that's trying to knit it together is going to be helpful because it pulls Desmond Angels and startup Tucson and tech parks and tech, TLA and all these different groups kind of gets them all in one room regularly. And I think that McGuire has a role to play in advancing Tucson, right? And the state of Arizona forward with regards to creating more opportunity and making this a real destination for, for companies. And if you make it a real destination for companies, it'll start to attract money from Silicon Valley. I did attend a conference on behalf of McGuire a couple months ago. And it was a, they had actually brought Silicon Valley venture capitalists into Phoenix and there were a lot of local companies there. And interestingly enough, you know, angel investing tends to be in like the one to $1.5 million when you do an angel round and then you get to VC and they want to spend 20 million. Well, there's kind of this middle class in between, right? So, you know, uh, the VCs, they don't want to, they don't want to give you $5 million. It's not big enough. And so one thing that I learned was that there needs to be an avenue for creating opportunities for sort of these mid-level investments, 5, 10, 15 million, that just right now are hard to get to for companies in places like Arizona. And, you know, you can't just pick up your company and move to Silicon Valley. It's like impossible. No one, know nowhere to live. And so, yeah, I think, it, I think it is creating a real opportunity for Arizona as a state for all, all different kinds of startups, tech and otherwise.
2: I think those are some great goals that you have for McGuire and I'm excited to, to follow vicariously. Um,
1: yeah, I actually didn't even get into the whole thing about being a thought leader. You know, agile entrepreneurship, ma- making that a focus, making the creation of digital content. And actually, you know, we build real product. The thing I haven't talked about is McGuire has a component called Tech Core. We actually have a team of developers that are available to work with our venture teams to build wow. their prototypes. And sometimes it's using CAD technology to design something, you know. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, you know, helping to build an app or whatever, but having that kind of capability in our program is a really interesting and distinguishing factor about the program because we really want to see these products get more fully formed. Maybe not all the way to MVP, if, you know, they're not likely to be able to get there by the end of the second semester, but as close as we can get
0: them. I mean that's huge. I know our school, there are some kids that bring the same idea. I mean, six, nine months along with just a pitch. It's just, you know, because they don't have that resource. So that's well, huge. and they're
1: scraping money and trying to convince friends and family or whoever to like code for them and stuff no. like this, you know, but, uh, you know, that gets down, you know, we have funds also available and there, there are funds that we have available in the program so that if there's things that you can't do as a venture, but you need to move your venture forward. So maybe it's a whole like market research project that you need to, couple, three or $400 to go do, you can actually apply for those funds and we'll give them to you. And that, that also can be said for some of our, pro, so some of the product development stuff can be, uh, can qualify for those funds as well. But because we, we recognize that, that sometimes ventures, they just get stuck. You, know, you might have a team of four, but you just, you know, they want to build an app, but they just don't have enough skill set in the team or enough, or the one person on the team who is a coder doesn't have enough room
2: yeah that's a very accurate description of of some of the problems that we face at Alabama with the edge and I think that they're working on you know some similar ideas like that and bringing in the computer science program to to work with them one last question for you that we've got is if you could give one piece of advice to your 20 year old self what would it be
1: I would have spent I would have spent more time uh, developing relationships with people outside of the company that I was in. I, I was pretty, pretty narrowly focused on just like working, getting a paycheck. And although mm-hmm. actually at 20, I was in, well, 21 I was in graduate school, but yeah, uh, Build those I, relationships. I, I would have done a better job. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, we didn't have the internet back then, Kyle. So, far. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. it was like writing letters and you know, long distance yeah. phone calls. I mean, you, you, you can not just connect I, on LinkedIn. It's not, yeah, it's just not, it wasn't the same, but I I could have done a much better job. I probably would have accelerated my growth as an entrepreneur earlier, Uh, but, you know, life happens and, you know, you get get married, you get a family and stuff like that, and, you know, you don't, again, you don't know what you don't know. And I think I had a lot of fear in those early years that, that if I did it, I would fail, and it kept me back.
0: That's a very valuable piece of advice, and I hope our listeners take it to heart because, I mean, having done not like a really full job, but at my co-op, it's so easy to just have your work environment and the same friends you had already and call that a social life. But you have to be really intentional. Uh, And I know we're talking about a completely different reality than we're currently living in where anyone that's still working is probably doing it from home and things like that. But definitely getting out there and being intentional about forming relationships professionally and personally just outside of your everyday routine environments is huge.
1: Yeah. You know, part of doing this job, being a mentor in residence, you know, we don't do it for the money, right? I think part of it was, was, is, is just my way of paying it forward. I, I get a lot of gratification when I see student teams go from being completely disorganized to excelling. <laughs> now some of them show up and they're organized all the way through, but there's something about the teams that just, they don't seem like they have a clue. And then all of a sudden they just, it clicks and, and you hope that you had some little helping hand in, in, mm-hmm. in getting them to that point and helping them to open their eyes a little bit, right? Cause college can be very myopic. You're on campus. It's really fun. You got your friends. Uh, and then, you know, like literally you go from, you go from graduation to like needing to support yourself
0: in like a week. That's a great, that's a great thought there. And I'm glad you find the job so rewarding and uh, Kyle and I really, really appreciate you coming on here. We uh, yeah. thought it was very interesting the way you let your, real world lessons from the companies you've built and the jobs you've had inform your approach to educating a new generation of entrepreneurs. I think it's a much more healthy approach to professorship. And I hope more universities like adopt that model, taking people who have done it, who have started companies who have kind of had the different hats and know that what it's like to have to make it work, uh, be the people giving that education. I think some of the new programs as well are super exciting. The agile approach to entrepreneurship. I think Kyle and I will attest. I bet we're going to start hearing it in our circles and, the other half of the country. I think you're probably charging the trend there and it's going to be uh, the next big thing in those communities. And we just appreciate you sharing your advice here. And we're excited to see what comes out of McGuire. I'm excited to see uh, what happens with the McGuire company I chose to get involved with. they took second at this year's competition and I'm going to work on their building out their digital presence. So thank you so much for coming on with us.
2: And that wraps up our interview with John Sharp. I think it's really great how the University of Arizona has somebody who's, who's really been in it and, and been an entrepreneur that's, that's teaching these young entrepreneurs how to work. I think that it's a, it's a much more efficient way than having professors that only know the theoretical and instead having people that know what's it, what it's like in, in the real world.
0: Yeah, I completely agree, Kyle. I think that John's a, a great guy and I am really excited for the curriculum he's putting together for the students in this upcoming year. And I think there's already some successful stories coming out of his program in the past couple of years. So I am glad we were able to get him on the show. And I hope you all enjoyed listening to this conversation. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more of it, we've put out 23 other episodes you can go ahead and listen to if you don't want to wait until next week. Otherwise, we're going to have a new episode every week, most of the time on Tuesdays. But you know, it doesn't always happen that way. Anyway, if you like us and want to keep up with what we're doing, we post updates on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You can find us by searching for The Lewis and Kyle Show. And if you want to support us, the best way to do so is by telling a friend about the show. Say, hey, I know you like this topic. The Lewis and Kyle shows this cool podcast that my friends do, whatever you want to introduce us as. And they do this show on this topic with this guy. I think you'll like it, recommend it. And that's it. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye.